Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. He's going to join us on the show today. We're going to talk economy, budget, and maybe dive into his comments that got him under a little bit of fire last week with regards to the experience of renting. And a little later on, Retail Insider Editor-in-Chief Craig Patterson, he's going to discuss how heightened tensions between Canada and China could hurt Canadian brands operating overseas. And we're also going to get into Amazon's big grocery store plans and even more. But first, I do want to remind everybody that the 20th anniversary of the Influential Women in Business Awards, they're on March 8th at the Fairmont Waterfront Hotel. You can find more details at BIV.com slash events. Now let's talk economy with BC Liberal leader, Andrew Wilkinson. So in British Columbia, the real estate market is cooling. The consumer spending, it's it's down, and we're likely facing tighter interest rates by year's end. Yet BC is still poised to be one of the best performing provinces amid a slowing global economy. So is there much that can be done to further improve BC's economic outlook? With us today, it's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Andrew, thanks for joining us on the program once again. Good to be with you. So the latest budget was tabled last month. I want to know from your perspective, what would you have done differently to keep the economy humming along right now? Well, the NDP budget was based on two core principles. Increased taxes are better because the state knows better what to do with your money than you do. And there's no need to stimulate the economy or plan for the future. Uh, we're seeing a budget that says a 30% drop in resource revenue, a 40% drop in housing starts, and they plan to do nothing about that and assume that their revenue will remain the same and actually increase because they're increasing taxes. So from your perspective, and we've spoken to representatives, say, from the BC Chamber of Commerce, as well as from the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, and they're a little bit ho-hum on this, especially with what re- with regards to what it means for, say, small businesses. What do you think small businesses re- need right now from the provincial economy? Well, Small Business in British Columbia is this year seeing a tripling of its bill for uh, employer health premiums. The medical services plan premiums are still present and they've introduced the employer's health tax at double the rate. So the small businesses are being hit by a tripling of their costs. And we're hearing from many of them who have done things like the Victoria Police Department, who said they would lay off seven police officers because they have to pay the tax too. So small businesses seeing a lot of hits on this. And there's an underlying concern that the industry themselves said in their throne speech before the budget that people are working two and three jobs and still can't get ahead. Well, if you look at that admission by the NDP, it's quite a stark one because they're in the process of increasing everybody's taxes and not taking care of any economic concerns that are growing on the horizon. And so it's not a promising prospect. We have low unemployment because people are scrambling around getting jobs that don't pay them enough to get ahead in life. Well, at this point, there are also fears perhaps that uh, BC's economy could be at risk amid, I guess, uh, tense relations with China How do you find the diversification of the BC economy right now, especially when we also consider how tangled up we are with the real estate market? And you pointed out just a moment ago with regards to construction uh, starts that are forecast. Yeah, the interesting thing is that our relationship with China uh, economically grew dramatically under the Gordon Campbell Liberals. It went from basically um, minimal exports of um, forest products to being close to half of our market now. 
So that was a very good thing. We all know that there's been an increase, a massive increase in traffic back and forth through Vancouver Airport, uh, direct from Chinese cities. I was at an event uh, just this weekend with uh, about 100 people who've come here to make their lives here. And they're very concerned about the relationship that um, the NDP are, are demonstrating in terms of their approach to what they call satellite families and how they're basically singling out Chinese people for discrimination. And this is not a good thing in any historical or economic context. In the broader macroeconomic context, we're in the middle of a squabble between the United States and China. And the entire Huawei controversy is now blossoming, and we can only hope in British Columbia that our export industries aren't uh, somehow challenged by as collateral damage to this entire Huawei uh, dispute with the USA. Well, I, I think there is a tendency to uh, people to unfairly target certain demographics uh, here in British Columbia because it is kind of an easy thing to do. But I mean, in your opinion, you know, are, are satellite families in which you know some groups have a primary breadwinner not based in the province, not paying taxes within the province yet? The families are using resources uh, provided by taxpayers here. How do you go ahead and tackle what is a, a very complex issue? Well, I think this is precisely the problem. And, and demonizing people as satellite families and what they're doing is trying to establish themselves here and make a happy life for themselves here. And the usually the father in the family is obliged to work either in China or California or Alberta or somewhere else. Is this a group of people you want to demonize or do you want to encourage them to settle here and be prosperous here? Obviously, people would like to be unified families working in the same place. But, you know, our province is full of people who work outside the province, whether as consultants or as tradespeople. Certainly a lot of them work in mines in the north. I've got two relatives who work in separate provinces from where they live because they're in the geology business. Do we want to be telling people they're not welcome here because they bring their income in from elsewhere? It's a very small-minded view of the world. But, I mean, they are using resources here, and I do think that that touches a lot of British Columbians that are, you know, paying the taxes here in this province. I, I do wonder if there is a solution to this uh, particular issue at this point. Well, the medical services plan premiums are being phased out. They were something that was uh, paid by every uh, British Columbian to support their health care, and the NDP are getting rid of those. And we also look at things like the property taxes that are paid by people who don't use much of the services, and the NDP have decided to target those people. So this is a complex economic situation that uh, requires thoughtful tax policy. And instead, the NDP have decided to send out 1.6 million forms to people to justify their existence and, and convince the NDP they're not speculators. This is rubbing people the wrong way in a big way because it suggests that uh, sheltered, small-minded uh, view of the world that does not uh, lead to prosperity. Vancouver and British Columbia are totally dependent on export markets. And to pretend that we're an isolated place in the world and we put up walls around BC is just plain wrong. Well, I, I guess somewhat related to that, and this is the next thing that I wanted to discuss with you, is we are facing a, a very severe labor crunch here in British Columbia. I, I spoke to economists at the Business Council of British Columbia, and they say one of the big problems is people do not want to migrate here, and a lot of it has to do with the affordability issue that this province is facing. How do we tackle something like the labor crisis that seems to be ratcheting up more and more every time we look at new data from Stats Canada? Two angles on that. First of all, demographics. They're, we're at an all-time low in terms of high school graduates because people had many fewer children. That's going to slowly reverse itself as more kids come into grade one, but it takes 12 years to go through. That means that there are fewer people in that uh, 20 to 30 cohort who provide the 
new workforce to replace the people who are retiring. We have 700,000 people retiring in the skilled trades and small business in British Columbia in the next decade. Those have to be replaced. You either replace them by training local people, which is obviously a top priority, or by interprovincial migration or by immigration. And so that is the crux of the skill situation, is making sure we have enough people to do the work. And that's going to be something that we certainly challenged and worked hard at with the Beast Stables Jobs Plan. Under the NDP, we've seen no replacement for it. One of the other things that the BCBC has said before is that BC, the province, is developing a bit of a reputation for having regimes that are increasingly hostile to large infrastructure development. Uh, they, they also extended this characterization to Ottawa as well. Do you agree with how they are characterizing some of the current climate, especially when we do see large infrastructure projects being announced, like LNG Canada, for instance? This is a problem for all of Canada in terms of our approach to major investments. Do we want to have substantial investments that lead to the kind of prosperity we're seeking, or do we want to build walls around Canada and have it remain a place where people have limited job prospects? In my mind, clearly, we are trade dependent. We are also investment dependent. LNG Canada is a very good thing with a $40 billion investment that was largely structured and put in place by the BC Liberals, and it was announced by the NDP last October 1st. Immediately after that, one of the cabinet ministers was uh, supporting the protesters who were trying to obstruct the entire project. And now the NDP are, are a little bit evasive about what their approach is to the appropriate First Nations consultation. So this sends shivers down the spine of investors because they say, look, Canada is an unpredictable enough place and ever-increasing obligations to deal with environmental issues that may not be workable, and along comes a government that it proves to be fickle. On the one hand, they encourage investment. On the other hand, they're quite happy to deal with the people who want to obstruct it forever. Got to ask you this, Andrew. Of course, you came under fire last week for comments made about the experience of renting. Let's protect the renters. I was a renter for 15 years. I lived in a dozen different rentals. It was challenging at times, but it was fun. It was part of growing up and getting better. We've all done it. It's kind of a wacky time of life, but it can be really enjoyable. Being a renter is a fact of life. It's a rite of passage. I honestly don't know many renters that would describe their situation in this manner, but I'm wondering from your perspective, can you clarify what you meant by this? And would you have phrased it a little bit differently now that hindsight's 2020? Well, I was a friend to my time in my 20s, and during that period from age 17 onward, I moved 19 times. It was a very unstable time, very challenging. There were times when it was fun to establish your own household when you're 21, but it gets to be a real grind. And it's also now compromised by the NDP's approach to renting, which means that there's a shrinking supply of rental housing. Renting only works out when there's an ample supply to choose from so that landlords feel the pressure to reduce their rents accordingly. Renting can be a choice people make for life. Many people don't make that choice and don't want to do it. And obviously, I'm very sympathetic to their cause because we need to be able to ensure that people have a good choice of affordable rental housing. And, you know, my comments have been misconstrued as applying to everybody. They were clearly applying to myself when I was 20 years old. Would you agree with maybe the idea that your own experience, you know, uh, back in your 20s would be different from many of the experiences that people are currently facing in an affordability crisis that is kind of unique across the world right now? 
Well, we have a fairly worldwide phenomenon that attractive cities have very high real estate prices, whether it's Auckland, New Zealand, or Sydney, Australia, Hong Kong, London, Vancouver. And what that does is it makes it more difficult to uh, get a rental market going because the cost of land is so high and because uh, landlords tend to say, well, why don't I just sell this place rather than rent it out? That leads to a shrinking rental supply. The NDP have made this worse by producing a whole string of things that are not friendly to landlords, making people think, why should I bother renting up this basement suite? So we've said two things need to be done for sure. A major expansion in student housing to get them out of that affordable range of the market, often the basement suite market. And secondly, protect and enhance and, and generate more co-op housing. This has come under uh, stress in Vancouver because the city of Vancouver, as the landlord, is starting to say, well, maybe they can get more money out of their property by getting rid of the co-op housing. That's a huge mistake because co-op housing is one of the ways you can keep affordable housing available to people for decades. And often they'll make their entire life in that co-op housing. That's a good thing. Okay, we'll have to leave it at that. Uh, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. It's always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Good to talk to you. That's BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Stay with us. Retail Insider's Craig Patterson joins us next to talk about all the latest news in the retail industry. With us now to talk about all the latest news in retail, it is Craig Patterson, Editor-in-Chief of Retail Insider. Craig, thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. So, new report out from the Wall Street Journal. They're saying that Amazon plans to open dozens of grocery stores. What do you make of this? It's going to be distinct from Whole Foods, right? That's what they're saying. I'm really fascinated by this, especially if they plan on moving this into Canada. And, uh, you know, given that Amazon Prime is in Canada and given that you know Whole Foods is in Canada, that was before Amazon bought it. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at some point if it takes off the... Uh, uh, you know, as a test in the states that we see them in Canada, it's disruptive to our industry. Do you think? I don't know. This could be their effort to really compete with Walmart. Like, if you look at Whole Foods, it has a very, very much of a kind of an elitist quality to it, and they keep making such a big deal about how Amazon and Walmart are these big rivals, and Walmart's making strides to e-commerce. Is this now Amazon really making a play for that big brick and mortar retail landscape? I think it is. And that's really insightful that you pointed that out because, uh, you know, Walmart has really been beefing up its grocery business, uh, you know, in the United States and in Canada. And, um, you know, I have other businesses as well. Um, you know, Amazon already has an expansive uh, category in terms of, uh, you know, the products that it sells. And, um, you know, doing physical grocery, I think, uh, you know, is kind of the next step. Some people still do prefer, you know, to shop physically for groceries. Uh, I know lots are ordering them online, but the fact that they're offering this uh, brick and mortar experience, which is shown to drive sales online, uh, International Council of Shopping Centers came out with a report, uh, showing that, you know, an online retailer that has a physical store can drive sales online or sees a 37% increase in traffic to their website. Well, I'm curious about that as well, because look, do you think there's the potential for kind of Amazon to use this as a jumping off point to do everything from, say, picking up, you know, packages that people might order online instead of just waiting for a courier? You can just go ahead to your neighborhood Amazon grocery store and pick up a package that's already been delivered there. Maybe they even expand their distribution into some of these centers to a smaller degree. It's not just groceries going forward. 
Oh, I bet they will. I mean, again, that's a very good point. I would suspect that, you know, Amazon, if they're doing this right anyways, would, you know, look at the synergies and look at the benefits that they can get from having these physical locations. Uh, I am a little disappointed with Whole Foods. I think that, uh, you know, Amazon could be taking it to the next level and really they're not. Uh, I do shop at a Whole Foods uh, quite regularly and, uh, uh, you know, I don't find it exceptional compared to some of the other stores that I've seen. I actually think Whole Foods, at least in Canada, has gone downhill since uh, they've moved management back to Chicago primarily to make the decisions. It was actually in Toronto for a time, and, you know, it had some made-in-Canada uh, products and, uh, uh, you know, uh, unique Canadian things that they don't have now. So, I mean, I think that uh, it's an interesting move. I mean, I kind of had hoped that they would make Whole Foods a little bit better, but like you said, it's uh, Whole Foods has you know that whole paycheck uh, <laughs> in quotation marks uh, connotation to it. Whether yeah. or not that's true, you know, it's still more expensive than you know your no frills or your you know fresh coastals. Well, is this just kind of an example of Amazon learning what they can from this fresh uh, from the Whole Foods acquisition, uh, learning about supply chains, learning about how the grocery industry works, which is very complex complicated and then essentially applying it to their own kind of distinct model? I would think so. Um, they've got the infrastructure now with that, which was, you know, for, I think it was 3.7 billion or no, it was actually more than that. It was a billion of dollars anyways. And, uh, um, you know, now they've got the infrastructure, they've got the background, they've got the talent uh, within the company if they've stayed, that is, of course. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think they're able to roll this out uh, in a meaningful way, and uh, it, I think this is a huge threat to Canadian grocers because it, it, the margins are already tight in the industry, and you know some are still struggling. And uh, this is just another, uh, you know, challenge. Uh, I also worry of Aldi, uh, the German grocers coming into Canada. I mean, uh, I wouldn't want to be Loblaws or Sobies uh, or overweighty right now. Well, I guess it'll also give an entirely different connotation when you're speaking about your Amazon shopping cart moving forward. But uh, Craig, the other thing <laughs> we're seeing right now is tensions between China and Canada. They continue to ratchet up. What with the Department of Justice approving an extradition hearing for Huawei Executive Meng Wanzhou last week, what does this mean for Canadian brands in China moving forward at this point? We've talked about this a little bit uh, in the last few months, but where do you think it's going right now? Yeah, I, I'm more concerned about this issue now than I was in the past. I thought that, you know, everything would blow over. But uh, last night I read an article in a Chinese uh, uh, newspaper publication that, you know, we can read anywhere pretty much. And it, it, it was from China and it was essentially saying people are boycotting. And I, even if they're not, they are going to be, people will boycott after they read this article because they think it's what's happening, right? Um, you know, whether or not it's propaganda or otherwise, uh, you know, they specifically named Canada Goose, they named Lululemon, and they named Tim Hortons. These are all, uh, these three uh, brands are expanding into China, uh, you know, quite extensively. Tim Hortons says they're going to do 1,500 locations in China. That's their plan, if not more. And, uh, you know, Canada Goose uh, will only do a handful of stores and uh, may have, you know, almost completed that expansion. And then, you know, Lululemon, which is a terrific Vancouver-based brand, uh, uh, you know, who knows? It remains to be seen. Uh, I think this is a huge threat right now, uh, and um, it could also hit Vancouver retail because, uh, you know, are people going to come from China to Canada to shop? I mean, some stores make millions of dollars, uh, you know, from Chinese tourists, and uh, I think we're at a really uh, challenging point right now. And uh, I'd be a bit concerned if I were the retailer, you know, in Vancouver or otherwise, or Lululemon for that matter. Yeah, we can only speak about this anecdotally here at BIV, but what we are hearing anecdotally, though, is if you go on these flights from you know Vancouver to mainland China, a lot of them are just not as populated as they were, you know, say, November, December. 
And I, I think that this is having impacts on, like you say, even from tourism to just business networking to, of course, kind of that shopping tourism that Vancouver is uh, becoming known for. But do you think it could easily blow over if things cool down between Canada and China? Or do you think this could have long-term impacts moving forward? Well, I'm holding out that things are going to get better only for the fact that it sounds like this extradition will go ahead. And uh, uh, what I mean by that is the United States will become uh, more to blame in terms of actually taking the reins on this lawsuit. Um, however, <laughs> the whole uh, uh, SNC-Lavalin uh, fiasco has you know, created the perception that the Trudeau government is manipulating the judiciary, and that could not have come at a worse time in this whole situation because now you know the chinese can look to canada and say well yes they do try to influence uh, i mean this is a nightmare right now if you think about it yeah uh, you know we're looked at as, as a country you know we say other legal systems are, are not impartial and you know that you know justice isn't being served and now you know fingers can be pointed at us and with good reason well at this point we also found out that uh gap is going to split off old navy into its own separate company. Tell me a little bit about what's behind the decision and what it really reflects about what's going on at Gap right now. I've actually got my own speculations about that. I mean, Old Navy has come out ahead in terms of you know being a profitable brand that's uh, become the most popular. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was an experiment. Uh, you know, to go up against uh, you know a few competitors in the lower priced uh, you know pro- product and fashion range that you know the. Uh, the gap wasn't quite addressing the gap, you know, was, and Banana Republic especially were a little more upscale. But um, now we're spinning this off. And you know what I'm wondering personally? I'm just wondering if this is the beginning of uh, uh, an operation without Old Navy uh, being, you know, the group uh, with the gap name that would, uh, you know, if it continues to falter, you know, is this an easy way to close that uh, entire chain? I don't know. I mean, it would be hard to bankrupt an entire company if it had Old Navy being successful, but yeah. it would be far easier if, you know, sales continue to plummet, uh, you know, to close that set of stores. And, you know, in Canada, that would certainly affect, uh, you know, Gap stores, uh, Banana Republic stores. Um, also, interesting, people may not know this because there isn't a store in Vancouver, but the Gap owns Intermix, which uh, is a very high-end women's fashion store. Stores are usually about 2,000 square feet. There's one in Toronto, and they were supposed to expand into Vancouver and other markets, and they never ended up doing it. But, you know, nevertheless, uh, these are all under that new Gap uh, um, corporate uh, operation. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, that was my first suspicion anyways. Well, what do you think, you know, Gap has been doing wrong in recent years? Like, what do they maybe need to also think about if they want to turn things around beyond just, you know, cutting Old Navy loose and letting it spread its wings into a more successful company? Well, my first inclination would say be more like Old Navy, but I don't think that, sure. you know, necessarily, you know, the best suggestion, just given that, you know, Old Navy is what it is. Um I mean, the Gap used to innovate with its fashions, and it was, you know, a brand to wear. I mean, it was the jeans and the T-shirt. It was one of the trendier brands. I remember in high school, you know, that was a brand to aspire to wear. And, you know, if you could afford it, kids had lots of Gap-related clothing. I don't think the Gap is seen as that now. It it hasn't necessarily, uh, um, you know, created uh, incredible designs that people must wear. Um, I think fashion taste has certainly changed since then. And uh, there are a lot of competitors out there, um, you know, from companies that have introduced new lines uh, that are, you know, domestic and from North America, as well as international entrants coming in. And, you know, more is coming. I mean, Poland Bear, uh, which is out of Spain, it's uh, part of Inditex Group, which owns Zara. Um, you know, they're starting an online store in the United States. And I think that, 
from there they're going to open stores and they'll probably look at Canada at some point. Another competitor, there's just so many. You know, Mango could come back into Canada. Uh, and again, you know, uh, another Gap like brand. So, uh, I don't know if the Gap even has a future at this point unless they do something different. Well, they are going to be closing about 230 stores uh, worldwide, some of which will be here in Canada. Could these closures hurt malls here in Canada, or has the footprint of Gap kind of shrunk enough uh, at, at this point already that it won't necessarily matter that much? A little bit of both. I know the Gap has announced these store closures, but they've actually been happening already. Uh, I've noticed mm. uh, a number of closures, certainly in Canada, including some in the Lower Mainland. That uh, you know, I think they closed quite quietly. Uh, I, you know, the press isn't typically going to pick up if one location closes. But you know, for example, if you think where Muji is on Robson Street, that at one time was a Gap store, and uh, um, you know, another one in the eastern suburbs. I'd have to check the exact mall, but you know, I was reading that that one on on a chat forum that that had closed as well, and. I know in Toronto they've lost a few, and uh, uh, you know I, I don't know. I, I think that uh, <laughs> there probably will be more store closures, uh, including in Canada. I would hope that they wouldn't pull out of the country. Uh, the only reason I say that is it is expensive to do business in Canada, and some American brands, if they uh, you know start uh, seeing a lowering in sales, if they look at the Canadian operations as being a distraction. You know, they may they may look at exiting, but uh, in this case, I think the Gap, Banana Republic, et cetera, I think they are quite established in Canada. So I'm not quite so concerned there as, say, uh, a brand like, say, Chico's, which came in and only operates five stores in the whole country, and they're all in Ontario. For me personally, I was racking my brain last item from the Gap that I, I must have purchased, and I think there was like a sale going on and deep discount there, and I, I ended up getting some de- denim jeans. And I was, I was thinking about it. It's just like, well, it's not that I anything about these jeans stand out versus other brands. I mean, I just got them because they were on sale. So it's just kind of interesting how Gap really isn't kind of capitalizing on kind of a distinct brand, at least anecdotally on my part right now. There's a lot of jeans out there if you think about it. So anywhere from Uniqlo to Rock and Republic, I mean, there is a, the competition is, is uh, and designers now are doing it. Gucci, you know, has jeans. Uh, Old Navy has jeans. You can get them almost any price range. Well, last story. Let's go out strong here. You have a story up on RetailInsider.com. It's delving into full-service restaurants, becoming more prolific in Canadian malls. Tell me a little bit about what's being offered and why mall landlords are actually interested in doing this. Well, mall landlords are seeing that adding food and beverage to their shopping centers is a way to drive traffic uh, and actually create a destination that people want to go to. Um, I did the uh, Retail Council of Canada Shopping Centre study again this year, and we, uh, which we talk about shopping centres, including some of the trends. And one thing that uh, you know we've noticed is more full-service restaurants. I spoke to landlords, and they explained that uh, the reason they were adding these restaurants was, uh, you know, because first of all, I guess the customers were requesting them in many instances, but also it's a way to create a destination that people will want to come to and spend a bit more time in. So. Um, you know, typically a fashion mall had a bunch of stores and you would go there and shop and leave. And, um, you know, now people can go shopping online and, uh, you know, people can go other places to shop as well. So shopping centers now are trying to, uh, you know, the best ones anyways, they're looking to create, I guess, what we call complete communities where uh, you can go and you can have a meal, you can buy something, you might be able to see a movie. Um, if there's an amusement park like the Rec Room, which will uh, be opening up Park Royal and uh, the amazing Brentwood, for example, and downtown Vancouver too, actually on Granville Street, I believe. Um, that's free. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, all of these uh, 
um, you know, I, I think that creating a great shopping center is like mixing a recipe. You need to have different things in there. And our malls are actually catching up to what we're seeing in China, where, you know, they'll have multi-level shopping centers with an entire floor dedicated to food and beverage. And it's something we haven't really seen here yet in North America, perhaps other than, you know, West Edmonton Mall and a few others, which have a lot of restaurants. But, um, you know, like the CF Richmond Center, uh, you know, I believe has added one or two full-size restaurants recently to its property. And it's something we're just going to see more and more. Uh, it's also harder to lease to uh, the traditional fashion retailers these days. They're not opening as many stores. So it's a great way to use up space to add, uh, you know, some sort of food offering. It's going to bring people into the mall as well. Well, I was struck, uh, first time I ever traveled to Asia uh, more than a decade ago, I was struck by the fact that there were restaurants like everywhere I went in all of these malls that I visited. And it wasn't really the same thing growing up in Canada. There might be like one restaurant in, in like one mall or something like that. I, I, I just think, mm-hmm. are we a little bit slow off the mark at this point? Uh, are there maybe lessons that we can learn from other jurisdictions about what has worked there? Definitely. I think that uh, it's interesting. I think we're a decade behind, uh, if not more in some cases. I mean, landlords are catching up very quickly. And we've got some incredible landlords in Canada, you know, Cadillac, Fairview, Oxford Properties, Ivanhoe, Cambridge, Quadriel, you know, is Oak Ridge Center in Vancouver. Um, you know, these landlords now are looking at uh, some of the best practices being, uh, you know, implemented elsewhere. And, uh, you know, in some respects, are copying those. That also includes food halls. It's not even just restaurants. You know, Oak Ridge will have a large uh, uh, food hall component to it as well. So um, definitely, you know, yeah, no, our malls are behind. Uh, in China, they've really developed the shopping centers, I say, to the Middle East as well, um, in, a, in a fashion that has created a complete community. And I think I've mentioned that before, some cities in China have grown so fast that they never had those traditional downtown cores, you know, like that Robson Street, Granville Street intersection type of thing. The downtown core became a shopping center. It was just the way that things were set up. So um, you know, people are coming in and using that as their downtown, and downtowns are usually a place to meet and uh, socialize and do other things as well as to shop. And uh, so the shopping centers are kind of taking the form of what we would see in a, in a, in a inner city uh, center. It's the uh, the new city square at this point. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I think so, absolutely. Excellent. Well, Craig, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And that's it for us today. We're going to be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on Apple Podcasts as well as Stitcher. We also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help others find this podcast. I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening to us.